Our sermon text this evening is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. These are the words of God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would make it alive in us. I ask that you would uh, divide, discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. And God, I ask that you would instruct us now. Make us wise. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so you want to get married, <laughs> but you don't know what to do, <laughs> where to start, where to look, how to go about asking a girl out. Can guys ask girls out? Uh, can girls ask guys out? Uh, what, are, what are the rules? Well, uh, this sermon is for you, and uh, we're going to continue to discuss this in future weeks. Um, so I want to do a few different things in this talk, and uh, I've got like 13 pages of notes here. We'll see how, how far we get. Uh, this, I may have been overly ambitious, but I'm going to do my best. So this might be like three sermons in one. Uh, first, I want to just real briefly uh, walk through our text. And then second, I want to uh, give you what like an ideal biblical model of what it looks like to go from unmarried to married. So what does that look like according to scripture? And then third, I want to get into some of the obstacles that uh, there are right now in our culture to, uh, to marriage and how to overcome them. So that's where we're going. So let's start with our text. Uh, we all know that the Bible has a lot to say about marriage, but many people think that the Bible is silent, or at least is very quiet, about the process that unmarried people should go through to find a spouse. It is a common view that scripture doesn't really address this topic, and so you have all kinds of books and speakers who try to fill in this perceived gap, advocating for different models. And this can range from kind of just dating, like the world does, just with kind of a little Christian spin, or all the way to, I don't know, like arranged marriages. Maybe we should, should go back to that. Um, so uh, that's an option. Uh, and then uh, in, in our circles, you have kind of the, the courtship model, but even this gets defined in different ways, depending on who you're talking to. So there can be a lot of confusion as to what an unmarried man or woman should do. And those cultural norms can vary from place to place. So a lot of you are not from Moscow. This is completely new to you. You have no idea what people do here. We sometimes don't even know what we, <laughs> we do here. So, uh, so understandably, this is a challenge. There are real challenges also because sometimes people are going to take cultural customs and treat them like they're biblical mandates, like you're sinning if you don't do exactly like this cultural custom is. And then some people just think, it's the Wild West. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> so you want to avoid both the legalism of imposing unbiblical just customs on everyone and then calling them sinners if they don't abide by them, 
And you also don't want the every man doing what is right in his own eyes. That never uh, ends well. So we don't want to be a legalist. We don't want to be licentious. Uh, those are the two ditches we want to avoid. And thankfully, we have scripture to guide us. First um, Thessalonians 4 gives us some really clear biblical principles for how to find a spouse. So I want to draw some principles, I have, I believe, six of them, out of these verses. So uh, starting in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So principle one, it's very simple, uh, God's will for your life is that you be holy. Uh, this means that your obedience your submission, your conformity to God's word is the single most important thing in your life. If you are not following Christ, if you're not becoming more mature, then you just have no business trying to find a spouse. Stop and put uh, first things first. That's principle one. Principle two, holiness requires us to abstain from sexual immorality regardless of where we are in life. So if you are single, this means putting your lusts to death, fleeing from pornography, masturbation, immodesty, vanity, uh, becoming close friends with unbelievers, and every other kind of sin that leads to immorality. And this abstinence from sexual immorality does not actually end when you get married. In fact, the stakes get higher because now another person is involved. Yes, you now have a lawful and good place where sex can happen, but marriage does not miraculously solve a man or woman's lust problem. Sex requires self-control, and if you lack that before marriage, you are going to lack that in marriage. So holiness, self-control, self-discipline, abstaining from immorality right now is where every man and woman must start if they want to pursue getting married, because you're going to need it all the way through your marriage. Verses 4 and 5. So here's God's will. God's will is that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, here in verse 4, there is a translational question about what it means to possess one's own vessel. And there are two basic options. One is that the vessel is the man's body, and the man must learn how to, you know, kind of rule his passions. He must own himself. Uh, that's how probably most of you have understood this passage if you've ever read it. Uh, but I think a far more likely and better translation of this uh, Greek word for possess uh, would be the word acquire. And that is actually how other translations uh, take it. And in that case, the vessel is the woman. In 1 Peter 3, 7, the wife is called the weaker vessel. So under this translation, it would actually read that each of you, men, should know how to acquire his own vessel, wife, in sanctification and honor. And that translation is actually in the margin of some, some Bibles. And if you look uh, at the text, I think that's what fits best with the context here. But I'm not willing to, to like die at the stake for this. Uh, interpretation. Um, uh, principle number three then is a man should know how to acquire a wife in sanctification and honor. So under this uh, translation, it would be a really explicit command for young men to go through the process of getting a wife in such a way that honors God. And this is set in contrast to the Gentiles who take a wife in, quote, 
the passion of lust. So uh, there are lots of ways that you could go about uh, getting a spouse, but God commands Christians to do it in a Christian way. That is, honorably, not being driven by lustful passions. And this is principle four. Christians do not do relationships the way that the world does them. The world has its own dating culture, its own social norms, its own apps, its ways of hooking up and swiping. I, I'm not quite sure which way swipe, swiping happens. Uh, and, and Christians should not follow those who do not know God. Right? They, they're ignorant. They do not know God. Uh, just think about what you see on uh, TV. So if you watch TV, if you have uh, Netflix or something like that, what does the modern movie, the modern uh, sitcom, the modern TV show present as normal, as uh, enlightened morality for marriage? It's cohabitation, everyone's living together, uh, sex before marriage, it's, it's like everyone does it, um, adultery is common, uh, it's kind of the, if it, if it feels right, do it. Uh, the world is actually normalizing things that receives the death penalty under God's law. So adultery, fornication, sodomy, abortion, etc. These are capital crimes, and all day long in our music, in our culture's movies, uh, they win awards, and they're telling you that this is normal uh, for everyone to do. This is, in fact, how everyone lives. This, they're, they're giving you a picture of the good life, and we have all, to some extent, imbibed that. So uh, whatever the world is doing in its ignorance and lustful passions, Christians should have nothing to do with. There is a distinctly Christian way that we are to go about finding and marrying our spouse. Verse 6, God's will is that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. So principle number five, Christians must not take advantage of one another. They should not exploit one another as they seek a spouse. Uh, can you think of any examples of this in the Bible? So think about Laban, right? Th this guy did not treat uh, Jacob kindly. So uh, Jacob uh, sees Rachel. He wants to marry the, the young and beautiful daughter. And Laban agrees, all right, seven years work. You can have her on the marriage night. It's a different woman. And then he convinces him to work another seven years to actually get the one that he originally uh, contracted with him to get. So Laban dealt deceitfully with Jacob, defrauds him, takes advantage of his love, his uh, vulnerable position, and he exploits his future son-in-law. So this is, this is not a great way uh, to go about extending your household. Uh, King Saul did something similar with David. He said, whoever kills Goliath would get to marry the king's daughter. But Saul withholds uh, Merab, that's his oldest daughter, from David, unless he fights more battles for him. He's kind of pulling a Laban again. And then he actually just gives her away to another man. And then he offers him uh, his daughter Michael in order to be a snare to him. But we remember what the bride price was, 100 Philistine foreskins. David's wise enough by now to know he's probably going to uh, change the agreement. So he goes and gets 200, just, just to be sure. So... Just have that image of David walking in with this bag of 200 foreskins as the bride price to prove that he can have the king's daughter. It was it, yeah, you, however bad you think you got it, 
Uh, <laughs> it, it always could be worse, right? I've, I've heard of dads requiring men to like memorize the entire Westminster Shorter Catechism or something if they want to marry his wife. And I'd say that's a great way to <laughs> memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, and it's easier than killing 200 Philistines. Um, but I, I never had to go through anything like that. Uh, hopefully you don't either. So, so this text is a warning for parents, especially fathers. Uh, hopefully you all will take this to heart one day. You may be in this position. Uh, not to meddle or exploit potential suitors. And then also for young men to be aware of this. Uh, you, you could be taken advantage of. Uh, there are go- uh, those parents are going to be your possible future father and mother-in-law. So don't marry a girl unless you've counted the cost of being related to them. To them, the girls. I'm serious. Uh, the girls' fam. The girls' family can be a great blessing or curse to you and your marriage. A lot of young people do not. Uh, they underestimate the influence of mom and dad on their. Spouse, So you, you need to really thoughtfully vet them just like they should very thoughtfully be vetting you. So, so do your homework. Um, as far as not defrauding one another as brothers, this primarily refers to not coveting or lusting after someone else's spouse. And he attaches a threat to this command because the Lord is the avenger of all such. So uh, you could commit sin, you do something in secret, God sees and God will punish you. Your sin will find you out. Okay, verses 7 and 8, last principle here. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So sixth principle, if you reject all this stuff, uh, you're rejecting God himself. You're endangering your soul. So I've seen lots of Christians wander, uh, now they're ex-Christians, who have uh, flirted with, married, dated, uh, had sex with, had children with unbelievers. And they rationalize all all sorts of reasons why they did that, and they're no longer walking with the Lord. And this is not just unbelievers, but this includes nominal Christians. So you need to make sure they're like actually a Christian, not that they just said, oh, they were baptized once upon a time. And the same goes if they are of a different uh, branch than you. So if they're Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, those should be uh, pretty uh, big red flags for you that you're going to need to uh, possibly avoid that person if you're being uh, tempted into a relationship with them. And same thing for Baptists. So you got to be careful about these... Okay. Uh, (laughs) That's only kind of a joke. But, but this is something you're going to have to sort through because if you have kids, you're going to have to decide, are you going to baptize them or are you going to commit sin and not baptize them? <laughs> this is what our church teaches, right? Uh, Westminster Confession, it says this. So you, so you need to have these things sorted out for yourself. You need to be thinking about uh, your spouse, wh- what are they going to do, and uh, not marry someone that's outside of your religion. So religion is the single most important factor when it comes to who you marry, and God commands that we only marry in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7.39. And this just needs to be uh, just no question for you. And for you who have friends who confess Christ, uh, this is going to be one of the primary ways they're going to be tempted away from Christ, is through uh, relationships with the world. This was how... Uh, Israel was uh, taken away from their love to God. 
So, all that to say, marriage is good. Marriage is a natural good, but not all marriages are good. So it's better to actually be old and single and to die a virgin than to marry and divorce and suffer those consequences. So you need to choose wisely and not be overly hasty lest you sin. All right. So let's talk now about what the ideal model looks like. And this is the question that a lot of people have and a lot of people are confused about. So what does it look like to go from unmarried to married? And I want to emphasize that I'm about to give you the ideal Okay, and what I'm going to present is going to probably be, uh, probably none of you are going to experience what I'm about to present. So recognize this is like an extreme biblical ideal, and there are going to be some adjustments. And if you have a specific scenario that you have questions about, uh, you can ask that in the Q&A. So here's the five stages, and then I'll explain each of them. So stage one, preparing for marriage. Stage two, actively seeking a spouse. Stage three, season of discussion, or what we call courtship. Stage four is betrothal, or what we call engagement. And then stage five is marriage. Okay, so let's walk through each of these and give biblical justification for each. Stage one, preparing for marriage. Uh, this is basically your whole life up until you get married. Okay? <laughs> So your parents are responsible for making you a responsible adult, and you are responsible for also making you a responsible adult and becoming the man or woman that God has called you to be. So this was the whole last two weeks. If you're a man, you should be trying to become more like a priest, king, and prophet. And if you are a woman, you should be becoming more like the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. Now, uh, in an ideal situation, both man and woman would be raised in Christian homes. What do you know? They have godly parents, godly examples, and they are both mature and growing in their faith. So a man is ready when he can provide, uh, protect, and procreate. If you can't do that, you are not ready. A woman's preparation is going to look a little bit different, and it may depend on the maturity level of her uh, suitor, whether or not she is uh, ready, whether that would be a good match. So stage one, preparing for marriage, it's kind of, it's where everyone is up until they get married. And you could be more ready or less ready on that spectrum. Uh, stage two, actively seeking a spouse. All right, in an ideal situation, there should be four parties involved. And, and this is the ideal, remember this. Uh, so God would be one party. Uh, Proverbs 19.15 says, a prudent wife is from the Lord. So men, you should be uh, praying, asking God to show favor to you, uh, to provide. This is a spiritual activity and an earthly one. We pray and ask and we seek and we knock and eventually, Lord willing, he will provide. A prudent wife comes from the Lord. So we want God to be all involved in it. You want to be able to look back at, at uh, the story of you meeting your wife and see the fingerprints of God's sovereign hand on it, okay? So God should be involved. Second party, uh, ideally, is the parents. In Jeremiah 29.6, God says to parents, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Uh, and this is especially directed at fathers. So fathers should be active in helping their children find a suitable and godly spouse. If you love your children, how could you not care who they marry? So parents should be involved. Uh, third party, the man. Fourth party is going to be the woman. Uh, in Proverbs 18.22, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So finding, this is an active thing. You're going to have to do some work. You're going to have 
uh, to look. Uh, Here the man is actively searching in order to find a woman that will help him with his mission. Uh, People sometimes wonder if a woman can pursue a husband. Well, uh, yes, Ruth would be one example. Uh, She pursues Boaz, but in a very feminine way. Uh, You also have this passage, though, in Numbers 36, 6. It says, This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry whom they think best, but they may marry only within the family of their father's tribe. So in this uh, Numbers passage, which I'm guessing is probably relatively unfamiliar to most of you, you have a few different principles here. First, the the woman has a say in who she gets to marry. Uh, even in ancient patriarchal cultures where there's arranged marriages, uh, the woman had to give her consent. So she could say yes. Uh, it wasn't like she had to do exactly what her parents s- said. In this case, you, you must marry him. So the wi- these women are allowed to marry, it says, whom they think best. Uh, this places the decision-making process into the hands of these women, uh, but within certain bounds. So in this case, There's inheritance issues, they need to keep the land within the tribe, and so they're limited to the men within the tribe. This does not apply uh, to you today. So uh, women should be active, but they're active in a little bit different way than the man is. They should be considering who they would want to marry, and they should put themselves in proximity to the man so that she can observe his character, his family, his friends, patterns of how he acts, etc., And this takes some skill uh, to do, and we can talk more about that uh, later, if you want. So God, parents, man, woman, are all actively involved in this stage two search process. All right, stage three. This is the courtship, or uh, we might just call it a season of discussion time. So in an ideal situation, you would have uh, the parents, in an ideal situation, your parents would initiate this, perhaps with the other parents. So neither son or daughter would even need to be involved. Uh, But you also have lots of examples where uh, the man uh, would go and approach the the girl's father, and he would ask him for permission. So this is probably going to be the case for most of you. You're a young man. You want to uh, see if you are interested in marrying this girl. And so you're going to ask the father for permission to begin this season of discussion or this courtship or whatever it is. And sometimes you're going to need to do some homework to figure out what the dad, what her family even, what do they think about dating? Because they might not think any of this is, is biblical. They might have their own category. They, they might not even care. They might think it's weird that you're asking them. All right? So you got to recognize, especially in a community like this, a lot of you are coming from all over the country with its own cultures and norms. So you're going to have to do some some homework to figure out what is it going to be in this situation. So in an ideal situation, the man approaches the father, he asks, and a season of discussion begins. Now, uh, if you got this far, there's probably already some level of interest or attraction, but that is not required for this process to begin. So a, a season of discussion, a courtship period, the point of this is to determine whether you should move on to the next stage. So you, ideally, in this situation, you would be able to say no or get into it, and you realize, okay, we actually are going to disagree about pedo-baptism, and that's going to be a deal-breaker. So, and, and that happens, and it's good that you find that out in this stage. So 
This is a, a get-to-know-you stage, a fact-finding stage, and it's also the time where the dad is asking, hopefully, you a bunch of questions. So he should know that you can provide for her. He should know if you have uh, a certain kind of criminal past that he should know about, right? Any, anything, yeah, right? Uh, the, the crimes around here, yeah? you're cited for not wearing a mask or something. So the primary goal of this season of courtship is to determine whether this would be a good match. Uh, that the son and daughter are virtuous, mature, etc., and the parents should also be involved at pretty much all of this. So parental supervision is happening, and it's really up to the father of the girl to determine what the pace is, how it goes. So you are kind of at his whim, to a certain extent, uh, to how this is going to go, what pace is going to happen, uh, whether you can uh, be in a room with her all by yourself or not, right? Her dad gets to determine that, and you have to kind of submit to that. And this is one of the places that you as a man, who is one day going to be the man of the house, needs to practice submitting to right authority. You don't want to teach her that she doesn't have to submit to authority, because you're showing her how you don't have to submit to authority. Right? It's really bad uh, to do that. It creates lots of problems. So you need to be very humble as you go through this process. Um, so, if you're a young man, you would approach her father, tell him you're interested in getting to know his daughter more, and ask if you could begin this season of courtship. Uh, this might look like having family meals together. It might look like you have regular uh, conversations with the father. Uh, sometimes it's going to be an out-of-town situation, and you may have weekly, hour-long phone calls with her dad for six months. I know this is, this is what happens sometimes. <laughs> So just be, just be aware that you go down this road, you don't, it's going to be a surprise, right? What's behind this box? You'll, you'll find out. Uh, so all of that will happen, and if all goes well, assuming it does, if both you and the young woman are totally convinced that you should get married, the man would then ask her father for her hand in marriage, he would consent, and then you would move to the betrothal stage. So stage four, betrothal, or what we call engagement. So what's the difference between these two? So in the Bible, a betrothal is kind of like engagement, but it has a lot more legal force to it. So this is a promise uh, made, but there's a contract involved. So it's a lot stronger than, a, than an engagement. Um, typically, there's some kind of token given to the woman. In the Bible, you see uh, jewelry, gold necklaces, a nose ring, bracelets, other kinds of jewelry. Um, and this was, uh, some people think of it like a dowry, uh, in, in Hebrew, this is called this, this mohar, and this mohar is given as kind of security for the woman. So it's not like you're buying the girl from the dad. You're giving it to her. Sometimes the dad will keep it for safekeeping because let's say you marry her and then you abuse your wife. She uh, is vulnerable, but her dad is kind of like the bank. He's, he's got money for her. He can come in and take care of her. And so he's keeping the money as insurance. Uh, but more often you'd see it's some kind of like necklace with gold coins on it or bracelets, something that she wears that gives her economic security. What do we have in our culture? Ga engagement ring. Yeah, so, I mean, this is kind of a, a biblical precedent. And uh, this is the token given to the woman uh, to signify uh, this change in the relationship. Uh, there could also be conditions attached to a betrothal. Uh, 
So, for example, a father could state in the contract that the man must graduate from NSA and find a job that can support a wife within three months, or the betrothal is void, right? That could be a possible condition. Or if it comes out that the woman lied and she was not actually a virgin, or if the man lied about some debt he owed and then that betrothal was made under false pretenses, that betrothal could be nullified. The, the f- most famous example is, of course, of course, Joseph and Mary. So they're betrothed. They're not yet married yet. Mary gets pregnant with Jesus. And it says in Matthew 1.19, Joseph was a just man and was minded to put her away secretly. So he would have to uh, kind of divorce her, break this contract of betrothal. So in biblical terms, betrothal is the legal stage prior to marriage. And if you just imagine, I know we don't have this in our culture, but if you just imagine if that were the case, how much more serious you would take that season of discussion time. Because at that point, there are legal ramifications if you lied about this. And if you read the law of God, there's all sorts of different categories. If there's a virgin and this happens to her, if there's a married woman and this happens to her, and if there's a betrothed woman. So this is a different legal standing that she actually has before the law with different legal protections. So it really amplifies, like, you better know what you're getting into if you're going to ask her to marry you. So, uh, during the betrothal engagement stage, a couple will be planning for the wedding and their life life after. And this is a season of learning to express non-sexual romance, wooing the heart of your future spouse while not stirring up lustful passions. And there are lots of difficulties here, lots of dangers here, but you still are called to be pure, to, be, uh, to abstain from sexual immorality. It's not like, all right, I, I lust after everything, and then I get married, and then I just lust after this one thing, right? It's still, it's still sinful. So ideally, an engagement will be a very short amount of time. But there is no absolute biblical, ru- biblical rule given. Uh, personally, I think if you are waiting longer than six months, you're asking for trouble because the longer the engagement, the more opportunities there are for sexual sin. And so parents should be wise and try to make this uh, danger zone as short as possible. And of course, there's all kinds of exceptions uh, for this rule if someone's, say, out of the country or away for work. But if you're like seeing each other every single day all the time for six months and you're engaged, it's going to be hard to remain pure. And that's how God made us, right? (laughs) We're supposed to be moving towards uh, marriage, towards consummation. All right, so that's stage five, marriage. Hooray, you made it, you're married now. All right, that's, so that's the ideal process, and you can ask me questions about all the exceptions to this, to this rule. So let's talk now about some of the obstacles to marriage. So we live in very less than ideal times, and there are some major obstacles to getting married, and I, I've broken these up into three different categories. So category one, these are major obstacles to marriage in general. And then category two, obstacles unique to men. And then three, obstacles unique to women. Um, And one caveat, this is not an exhaustive list, just some of the major ones that I have uh, noticed. And if there are others that you think of, please do tell me. I'd actually be interested to know uh, what you guys feel and think that they are. All right, so general obstacles to marriage. Uh, And some of these apply to everyone, and some apply specifically to Christians. This one applies to just kind of everyone. So number one, people are less interested in getting married. That's a problem if you want to get married. In general, people don't want to. So we have uh, 
extremely low marriage rates and extremely high divorce rates. As of 2019, the marriage rate in the U.S. hit an all-time low of 6.1 marriages per 1,000 people. So that would be six marriages per year per 1,000 people, and it was almost double that uh, a generation ago. Okay, so this is extremely low. And then of those few couples who do get married, still about half of them end in divorce or separation. And common reasons that people cite for not wanting to get married include uh, more focused on career. Uh, One that I was surprised by, monogamy isn't attractive. This is actually a very common thing. People just think, I don't think I was meant to be monogamous. I've had people Tell, tell me this when I think, you know, you guys have been dating for a long time. Are you ever going to get married? And just looked me dead in the face and just like, I just don't think monogamy is for me. And I was just like, so you... Said yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> so this is apparently a, a, a common reason, and, and in some ways I can understand why. Um, also, other reasons cited, not interested, it's expensive. Uh, Some people say there's no point, especially since I'm already cohabitating, I'm already having sex, maybe you even already have kids, like, why do I need a piece of paper, right? You'll hear people say that. Uh, Another common reason, their parents divorce, or they've been around a lot of really bad marriages, and they think, why would I want to do that? So their experience of marriage has always been negative. So for these reasons and a bunch more, uh, people are generally less interested in getting married. And when you're less interested in something, you're not preparing yourself for it. Uh, Second big reason is economic climate. And that's actually what these people said. It's expensive. So right now, uh, there is a housing shortage across the nation. We are underbuilt uh, quite a lot. Housing prices are at a record high. So in 2018, If you wanted to buy a starter home, it would cost you about $204,000. Today, you're going to have to to spend around $300,000. So cost of living is very high, and this can also range drastically depending on where you live. I hear about what, I go back and visit Washington, and the rent that people are paying is like, you know, what a lot of people's entire salary is in Moscow. And I think, and that's, that's just to rent something, not even to own. It's absolutely insane. Uh, we have a very broken healthcare system, so health uh, care is extremely expensive. And uh, for those of you who don't know this already, the biggest expenses you're going to have when you get married and have a family, they're probably going to be housing, food, and all kinds of insurance. Uh, so some people's health insurance actually costs more than their rent, which is crazy. Uh, one of the easiest ways to become indebted is through medical emergency. So you have to have it because the risk is you're going to be owing hundreds of thousands of dollars if you get in a car accident and need some special procedure. So this is a big problem. Also, our national debt is at $29 trillion, and that breaks out to $229,000 per taxpayer. That's how, much, that's how much if we were just to distribute it and try to get out of debt that each of us would have to pay, if, if you're a taxpayer. Uh, this level of debt and borrowing slows economic growth and disincentivizes investment. On top of that, uh, the average American has a credit card debt of $6,000, which actually I expected it to be much higher. So uh, only, only six grand average uh, credit card debt. So when the economy is unstable, when we're indebted, people are less prone to get married and have children. 
uh, especially because they view children as just a consumer of these scarce goods, and so this can be harder to do. Third reason, uh, third obstacle, a very unhealthy and effeminate church cultures. So uh, Jacob actually mentioned this in his prayer, this idea of singleness as a gift has been perpetuated, and this is just a lie, right? This idea of this gift of singleness, where singleness is seen as equally good alongside marriage, is a very clever lie and a misreading of 1 Corinthians 7. Another one, common one, everyone knows, feminism. So marriage itself is a patriarchal institution of oppression. It encourages women to pursue careers outside the home rather than becoming wives and mothers, etc. And then also you have just a lack of teaching. Uh, in churches. So I I think Moscow, I hope, is an exception to this, but if you're dating outside of this, you're looking for a spouse outside of it, um, there's a good chance that the men and the women have never been taught as men and as women what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. So that can be a problem as well. And then fourth problem, just meeting people. So the uh, COVID makes this extra difficult. It's a lonely, lonely couple years. You just, you don't know what anyone looks like. How can you, how can you ask? You don't know. Uh, The primary place that couples now meet is online. Almost 40% of relationships start there. Uh, Can you guess what the second and third most common places people meet? Bar. Bar, good job. That's the second. That's 27%. All right, what about third? Sporting event. Sporting event. No. Not sporting event. What, what else? School. School. No. What? Uh, <laughs> through through friends. Okay. And I, I think that's a that's a pretty good one. <clears throat> and, and in these statistics, less than five percent of relationships start with people meeting in church. So I suppose that's not surprising since not everyone goes to church. But uh, a lot of people are now meeting online. This like this didn't even really exist uh, twenty years ago. So if, you are, if, so if you are a Christian, unless you are in a large and healthy church or, or go to NSA, uh, you're going to have to do some work. <laughs> what's, I, what's funny about that? <laughs> uh, you are going to have to do some work just to find someone that you might be interested in marrying. And meeting people online has all kinds of dangers and difficulties of its own. It probably deserves its own whole sermon. So how does someone overcome these obstacles? Uh, So the economic one, first of all, uh, stay out of debt, (laughs) whatever you do. Uh, Count the cost of taking out a loan to pay for your education if you don't have a written plan for quickly paying that debt off. Do I need to say that again? Count the cost of taking out a loan to pay for your school if you don't have a written plan for quickly paying that debt off. Few things will hamper you from getting married like having a bunch of debt. Set one-year, five-year, and ten-year financial goals for yourself and actually map out how you're going to get there. Start saving now. If you are a man, try to set aside, I would say, aim for having at least $5,000 set aside for marriage-slash-wedding-related expenses. Ring, appliances, maybe uh, you're moving to a new apartment, you need to put money down on it, something like that. Um, that That will get you there depending on the ring, right? Uh, <laughs> depending on how much you love her. Uh, if you, <laughs> uh, or she loves you. Uh, if you are a woman, if you are a woman, 
uh, you should start saving now for a down payment on your home, okay? You're going to need about $60,000 to get a, get a good mortgage that doesn't have crazy interest rate, and that's a lot of money, okay? So you can help your future husband by saving now, because he's saving to get you a nice rock for your finger, okay? <laughs> it's, the least, it's the least you could do. Right. So if both the man and the woman are doing this prior to getting married, you can avoid the debt trap. And uh, money is one of the major reasons why people get divorced. There's marriage problems is the pressures of, of money. So you can uh, anticipate that by planning ahead. All right. Uh, what about the uh, don't want to get married people, the effeminate church culture, all that stuff? Well, I would say uh, read, listen to, immerse yourself in a lot of the, the good resources that are out there. Uh, Doug and Nancy have a, a bunch of excellent books. Uh, C.R. Wiley has a really good book called Man of the House. And uh, Michael Foster, I read an advanced copy of his book, It's Good to Be a Man. He also has uh, a podcast, and that book is very good. I'll probably, uh, maybe I'll give some copies out when it comes around in December. So get those, read them, and start to adjust your whole way of thinking because uh, more than likely it's wrong if you've been in any of these other cultures. Uh, and then lastly, meeting people. This is probably the hardest one to overcome depending on where you live. And I would say take a page out of Genesis 24 and be willing to look beyond your local scene if there's no godly prospects nearby. So Abraham uh, wants to get a son for Isaac and there's no... Uh, prospects nearby, and so he says he sends a servant to go, and he ends up finding uh, Rebecca. So sometimes you need to send an emissary ahead of you to another place to find you uh, a wife, uh, or you could pull a roof and you could relocate yourself. So sometimes you need to move, and uh, fortunately, you're living in a place where everyone's coming to right right now. So it, it's probably going to be uh, less advantageous to leave Moscow, more advantageous to come to Moscow. And the blessing is there's been hundreds of uh, people that have moved here just in the last couple years, and a lot of them are single, and you should meet them if you are interested in getting married. <laughs> so uh, be hospitable, not creepy, right? <laughs> hospitable, not creepy. There's a, there's a line. These are two different things. All right, major obstacles for men. Uh, I just have... I'll list two here. There's lots of them. Um, so first obstacle, uh, yourself. <laughs> so we, we are our biggest obstacle. And then the second uh, major obstacle is there is a genuinely low supply of virtuous women. Right? That's what we learned in Proverbs 31. Who can find a virtuous wife? And you recognize you only have partial control even of these uh, obstacles. So control what you can control. Men, uh, there are many ways a man can decrease his likelihood of finding a spouse, more ways than I could list, but let's assume you are a Christian man who just graduated college and wants to find a wife. Here's four things you can do. Okay? This is very formula formulaic. These are, these are principles for you. Number one, uh, you really need to pray, <laughs> and you really need to ask for God's favor, because unless God's hand is on it, uh, you're going to screw it up. And uh, even when God's hand is on it, you still might uh, screw it up. So you want to be keeping an especially close walk with the Lord, uh, seeking him, humbling yourself before him, and being willing to change, okay? So, so stay close to God. Second, you're going to have to be possibly maybe a little bit brave, okay? Uh, you might have to talk to a girl. So, so, be, so, so be brave enough to speak words uh, to her. Uh, get to know her in group settings, and then be brave enough to actually talk to her dad. 
So if dad's not in the picture, you may need to just straight up ask her out. That's also something you may have to do. And as you get older, you know, when the girl's not in her home anymore, maybe she's got her own house by that time, uh, it's going to look differently at that point. But you are in this young and early stage. You're probably going to be asking the dad. You might have to be a little bit uh, brave. Uh, number three, accept the reality of what women are actually attracted to. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so here's what the data bears out. <laughs> and uh, maybe we can bring a panel of ladies up here to, to, to teach you. <laughs> so, so here's what the data, data shows. Power and status. D does that surprise you? Uh, charisma and confidence. Appearance, how tall you are, how you look, what your style is. Uh, so, if, so, for example, if you are a short man, in general, women are going to want to marry a man who's tall, dark, and handsome, right? Not every, you, but you're short, pasty, and, I don't know, stubby, right? So, so, so you, have, you have to look in the mirror, keep it real, figure out what league you're in, and recognize that if she's inches taller than you, she's probably going to say no. And, and that's probably, that's the natural law, right? She, she, probably, she probably should say, say no. So, so keep it real with yourself. This is, this is a genuine reason why women would be attracted to someone. And then, of course, resources, money, your ability to provide uh, the security that comes with that, etc. So I don't think any of those are surprising. If they are, you probably need a lot more help. Uh, so we could, we could summarize this paradigm, uh, this is something that uh, I learned from Michael Foster, I like the way he says this, is that men tend to view women as sex objects and women view men as success objects. All right? So that's kind of a crude way of putting it, but that is huh, the natural law. That is the reality and you should not try to uh, bypass that, okay? Otherwise uh, you're going to uh, end up uh, tying yourself in knots. So if you do not have those things, you may need to get them. And this is part of why the man puts the mission first, because this is how you get there. This is how you move up in the hierarchy. Uh, maybe you are naturally introverted and quiet. Well, this might be the time where your personality undergoes a transformation. All right, fourth, fourth thing, and this one's really important. You must be willing to be turned down. You need to be willing to be turned down. You need to be willing to have her say no to you and not get all in your feelings about it, okay? No woman, no woman or father owes you a yes. A woman does not owe you a date. There are all kinds of reasons why a girl or a father might say no. They might be good reasons, might be bad reasons. Some are just preferences. It's a free country. They can do what they want. So you should be trusting God, swallow your pride, and ask someone else. It is part of becoming a man. All right, here's some very specific advice for a man who is ready to get married but isn't quite sure who to ask. All right, and uh, this actually, I know people who have done this. So prayerfully make two lists. List number one is your wish list. If the girl was guaranteed to say yes, who would you ask? Make, uh, girls, just close your ears for a second. <laughs> Talking to the guys. <laughs> so make a list, number it, one to 10, 
And assuming she's going to say yes, I want you to put one, two, three, four. Maybe you don't even have ten. Maybe it's just one because you're a romantic, right? This, this, is, this is what the girls want to hear, okay? There's on, you're the only one, babe. So make that list, one to ten, most desirable at the top, lesser desirability moving down. And then, and then you need to make a second list. And this is the reality list. All right, this, this is where you got to keep it real with yourself. So one to 10, and you put, if based on the information that you know, based on what you know, which may be nothing at all, maybe a lot, if you were to ask her father or her, what is the likelihood that she would say yes? So this is a list of likelihood of yes, okay? Then you're going to look at those two lists and you're gonna see, are there names that are on both of them? How you could essentially score them, you could do it average, and that is at least a place, that is a, a place to start. So, uh, compare lists, figure out, and maybe that sounds mercenary and unromantic, but it's a good exercise to make sure that you are not overlooking someone that might be a good match or being super unrealistic about who is in your league. All right, women, I'm coming for you now. <clears throat> Major obstacles for women. I got three. Number one age and appearance. Number two, unrealistic expectations. Number three, uh, nobody is asking me, okay? So number one, age and appearance. You could also call this time. Time is happening to all of you. Uh, there have been various studies on how attractiveness changes based on your age. Uh, a woman's peak attractiveness happens, do you know when this happens? Any guesses? It happens at 20, at 20. So a woman's peak attractiveness happens at 20, and basically her early 20s, and this is just what men think. Men think women in their early 20s look best, and that's regardless of the man's age. And that probably sounds creepy to you, but all the way up to 50-year-old men think that women in their 20s look best. This is just what the data says. However, this is not true for men. Women tend to think a man is best looking when he is a few years older than she is or about the same age. And that holds all the way into a man's late 40s. Okay? This is very different for men and women. Some of you are like, yeah, this is common sense. I know, but a lot of you don't know this. Uh, there's also this thing called the attractiveness curve. And you could think of this as telling you which gender has the greater power of attraction based on their age. So who is turning down who at this uh, stage in the relationship marketplace? So of course, a woman in her early 20s, she's got all the power. She's more attractive than a man in his early 20s, and she's going to draw the attention of more men across all the ranges, right? So if, if all the men think the girl in her early 20s is at her peak attractiveness, that 20-year-old man has to compete with all of those guys. It's, it's tough. Um, however, uh, where am I here? Uh, so that means a 20-year-old man is now competing. Yeah, I said that. However, the tables turn at about age 32, okay? This is where suddenly the man becomes more attractive than the woman for their age. So a 32-year-old man, 32-year-old women, now the man is starting to have the power, and he has that power until they die. Right? So, so this is what it means. The man, the, man, the man is going to be considered more attractive, even up in, you know, he's 50, and the women's is go, going like this. Okay? So they meet, they cross at about age 32. 
So here's a couple of takeaways. I'm not just giving you this data because it's interesting. It's because it has practical output. If you are a man in your early 20s, just recognize it might be tough to find a, a woman because of all of the competition. But your best years are still ahead of you, and you will actually increase in desirability as you get older relative to the woman. If you are a woman, your best statistical chance of attracting a mate based on appearance based on appearance, is going to be while you are in that 18 to 24 range. And every year that goes by after that, it will become a little bit more difficult. And then at 32, it's going to get really, really difficult. If you're in your 30s, that difficulty starts to compound. Now, doesn't that sound unfair? Yes, it is unfair. <laughs> this, this is just the reality of how men and women work. But what this does is blows up the idea that women should trade their most marriageable, attractive years for a career and put that off. Some of these women have like frozen their embryos thinking, all right, I'll just marry when I'm 35 or, or 40. We'll unfreeze the embryos. Really tragic stories where they end up not working. Or you have these women who trade those marriageable years for pursuing a career and then they get to their upper 20s, maybe they're in their early 30s, they think, I still got some, and they realize there's nobody wants to marry me at this point. And so I would be doing you a disservice to not tell you this, okay? Uh, there are people, if you are going to pursue a career or pursue missions or do something, you need to really soberly count the cost of what that's going to do as far as uh, one day getting married, if, unless God has given you uh, the gift of celibacy. So keep it real. Recognize that beauty is fleeting, and also beauty is the thing that initially attracts a man to marriage. All right, number two, unrealistic expectations. Uh, scripture gives us a high standard for what we should expect and look for in a spouse. Those are standards that you should not lower or compromise on. So must be a Christian, must be able to provide, protect, must want to raise children with you, worthy of respect. So where do women go wrong? Women sometimes go wrong by being overly judgmental about things that God doesn't say anything about or by expecting their future husband to be something that no man could ever be, something that only happens in romantic comedies and Jane Austen novels. Sometimes these can function like emotional pornography for women. So, while there's nothing wrong with waiting for your Mr. Darcy, remember that he is a work of fiction invented by the mind of a woman. Uh, kind of like, yeah. Uh, that is not to say there aren't any extremely rich and good-looking bachelors in want of a wife with an enormous estate that you can be mistress of, but it does not mean, <laughs> but it does not mean that you are Elizabeth Bennet. You very well uh, are probably not. Uh, so there's, there's nothing wrong with desiring romance in a relationship, but those fantasies, those ideals, must be checked and subordinated to what God says to look for in a husband. So be careful not to just dismiss a man unless you have good reasons, and there are many good reasons to dismiss many men. Don't feel guilty about that. Um, in order to do this, you need to be very thoughtful. You need to have good counselors uh, giving you good advice. All right, real briefly, this last one, what to do if nobody is asking. So I'm going to give you five things here. Number one, you should read Nancy Wilson's book, Single and Satisfied. It's very short. It's good. You should read it. Uh, Number two, you should take inventory of yourself, your appearance, 
your words, how you come across to others, your friends, etc. Uh, perhaps there are habits or things that you need to change that are off-putting to potential suitors. H.L. Uh, Mencken once famously said, I don't know if it actually is famous, uh, he says, how little it takes to make life unbearable. A pebble in the shoe, a cockroach in the spaghetti, a woman's laugh. <laughs> so stop laughing. <laughs> so uh, everyone is weird, everyone has quirks, but it's good to be aware of our own weirdness in case it might be hindering your chance, chances at marriage. Uh, just like there are guys who are creepy, there are girls who are pushy. So don't be that guy or that girl. Uh, number three, you should ask an older woman that you trust to tell you the truth, even if it is unflattering. So even if this hurts me, tell me the truth. Ask her for tips, for advice, things that uh, you could do to be a more desirable prospect. Uh, number four, Look around and note if there are any men that you may have overlooked. Figure out who you might be interested and find ways of putting yourself in his path. And the trick here is kind of doing it indirectly. So you can host fun things, invite his friends to it and him. Uh, but if he keeps declining consistently, just take that as a gentle no and move on. Try not to take it to heart. Uh, the last option takes some courage to do, but I think a lot more women uh, should make use of it, although it's probably going to be more so uh, some of the, the older gals. And that is, you ask your father or another uh, older godly man to actually inquire on your behalf. So I've, actually, I've seen this happen, and this can be a very good way. If you as a woman are interested in a man, but he's out to lunch or something, you ask, you ask your father, you, maybe you ask a pastor or someone to approach him, say, hey, I, ad I admire and respect this man. I'd be interested in getting to know him. Could you ask if he is interested in someone? And if not, uh, I would be. So this doesn't mean you're asking him to marry you. It doesn't even mean you're asking him necessarily on a date. It could just be you're asking him or uh, maybe the, your father or this guy to arrange some kind of dinner or, or meeting for you. So you can use other people as go-betweens. You just need to be wise in how you do it.